Hey everyone, this is the Nips and Sips podcast. Uh, featuring me, I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd, uh, my usual partner in crime, Dr. Brandon Cruz. And today we have a special, special guest, Dr. Uh, Randy Lazicki, who uh, hey is a truly impressive individual. Thank you for coming on there, Randy. Um, Don't set the bar were... too high. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> we should start talking about you. So there's a uh, the reason why we brought you on board or we asked you to come on board and thank you for coming. Uh, Randy's uh, expert in uh, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilizations uh, and also dry needling. He teaches in uh, his own continuing education company. Uh, let me just, I should just hold on. Let me present this. Uh, this uh, yeah, he, he has great. probably one of the, if not the best resumes I've seen in uh, quite some time here. Um, yeah. So Can you? He, he's done a lot, obviously dedicated to, to the profession. Uh, honing his yep. craft, uh, and Jeremy, I'll let you speak on it because uh, you know Randy's someone you met uh, via your mm -hmm. fellowship training that you guys are, are in together, and this is actually Randy's second one. So um, yeah. I guess I'll just pass it off to Randy, and you know, please, you know, don't be humble. Just kind of give us your, you know, your um, your track here. I, I see that you're an ATC first. Uh, you have dual board certifications. You went through one fellowship. If you could talk a little bit about that and then uh, talk about the experience at IAR and then what led you to teaching because you've, you've taught quite a few classes both um, for yourself and uh, in some, you know, educate traditional education platforms. Yeah, has yeah, everyone so, seen all this action right here? Is that <laughs> what I'm scrolling through? Oh, where, 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 where'd you get that resume from? All right. I looked at it, I was just like, oh, I, I, I was like, oh, I got to check you out. Well, obviously, so I met you at... Yeah, uh, yeah at the IOR and I was just like, all right, let me, uh, I remember his name and then like wanted to find you. And I, I put that on Google, good old Google. And this yeah, came Google up and I was it. like, yeah. oh shit, this must be the guy. Cause is this outdated? not too many Do people to like this. Some more? <laughs> it's still going. That's the best part. Yeah. So like, just a little bit of background, I guess about myself. So, um, I actually am from New Jersey. So I uh, grew up in Vernon, New Jersey. Um, oh, so I know re representing up there. So that's by uh, me. Yeah. And I, um, I don't like the cold. So I got had to move down North Carolina and oh, uh, ended up, ended up going to um, school at Wingate to play soccer, not to really do anything, but that, um, and kind of get a little education along the way, fell in love with athletic training and then fell in love with rehab. Um, so I ended up going to Elon for my DPT. And then from there, it's all about, and you guys know this connections you make and people that you, um, you kind of work with and ended up, um, I'm kind of getting a good connection with um, those at Duke Sports Medicine and Duke Athletics. And I moved over um, there for my first position after I finished up at Elon. Um, then went into their fellowship and absolutely loved it. Um, it was a pretty significant time commitment. And, um, you know, but I got a great understanding of working in an interdisciplinary team. So it was, it was pretty awesome for me. And I, I enjoyed it. Got a chance then to go into uh, where I am now within special operations. Uh, so I'm a PT, a civilian PT, Badass. contracted down there. Um, and I've gotten to work with everybody from, uh, you know, the start of the pipeline towards the end. Um, so SF and civil affairs and psychological operations in the army. So it's been, it's been a really great experience, um, for me also working with strength and conditioning coaches and dietitians. It's been great. Um, I did, you know, um, start a educational doctorate and I just actually finished that August 7th was my graduation date. So I congratulations. It's awesome. Um, is that your then, DSC you have? Is... No, it's an ED. ED. So, yeah, doctor okay. education, yeah. 
Okay. So that was a that was a, a neat process to learn again from other different providers. Um, you know, learning from a phys ed teacher, learning from a sociologist, learning from a strength coach, um, kind of how we promote physical activity and how we kind of get people moving again and their perspectives. And then what drove me cool. and how I met Jeremy was moving into the IR fellowship um, in manual therapy because I think everybody should probably do some reflection at some point um, throughout their careers. You know, I do it every five years. Um, it's been a good block for me. And I said, hey, I want to get I want to get better at manual therapy. So I looked around, tried to find one that fit at least a little bit my philosophy. So I didn't have to change it drastically, but also kind of advance myself a little bit. Here gotcha. we are. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Real, real quick, if you can shed some light on maybe the differences between uh, your, your Duke Sports Fellowship uh, versus um, the IAR, like, mm-hmm. was there a big difference? Did, did you feel... For lack of a better term, I don't want this to come off the wrong way. That maybe Duke didn't didn't prepare you for for manual therapy. Like, what what is the difference? And I would like to know for for myself, but I'm yeah, sure yeah, the, yeah. the audience is um, curious as well. Yeah. So the the Duke fellowships focused on D1 sports. It's a sports fellowship. Um, Correct. So um, you know you're spanning the spectrum from acute care to um, you know injury management, uh, rehabilitation afterwards. Um, and you get to work, you know, it's site-based too. So that's a little bit different than IR's model where, you know, I'm, I'm obviously working, working where I am. It's hybrid model. Um, and I wouldn't say it did not prepare me for manual therapy. Obviously, I think we all have, mm-hmm. hopefully when we leave school, we have a good complement of that. And I've been to continuing education courses, but there's a difference between um, kind of going to a kind of one con ed course and then having a structured approach. And I think that's what a fellowship gives mm-hmm. you is a structured approach to learn and it's not just about techniques. It's about your clinical reasoning, decision-making, your, your history-taking, your, your physical exam is really what gonna, what's going to drive those techniques. And I think that's what a fellowship really gives you is that, mm-hmm. that mentorship in, in clinical reasoning um, versus Agreed. just learning new techniques. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the major differences I see between you know, both, both fellowships. And... So if um, – I guess follow-up question because – I get a lot of students uh, and early PTs, you know, and they see, you know, myself or, or Jeremy's, you know, dual board, dual board certifications, orthopedic sports. And, and maybe this is my bias as well. I, I think you need to have a foundation in orthopedics to be good at sports because sports is an extension. At least that's my viewpoint. Um, if you can maybe just share a little bit, you know, a little bit deeper into the sports fellowship. Do you agree, disagree with that? Um, you know, you, you did the sports fellowship first and then you now doing a orthopedic manual therapy. Did you do a residency, by the way, or you just. Studied I, I, no, I did not. Yeah, I did okay. not do a residency. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So if you could just share on, on your fellowship experiences then. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's a, maybe a good um, question that students ask. And, and I think. Uh, maybe students want to jump right into maybe I want to get my OCS, I want to get my SCS without maybe they're uh, getting the getting the letters behind the name without actually going through the process. Um, that's another thing. Okay. Correct. Um, yeah. But um, I think obviously everybody has a background in ortho um, to start with from school. I mean, musculoskeletal is classes that we all take. Um, ortho dives a little bit more into that, and especially when we say fellowships, it's manual therapy based. Um, mm-hmm. Um, if you have to traditionally look at sports too, the sports teams and athletics are going to be athletic training. Um, so that's really where that's coming from is, you know, even now today, the predominant makeup of all college 
um, sports medicine staff is going to be athletic trainers. And there's going to be some SDSs mixed in there as PTs, uh, but that's really yeah. what that's trying to bring to the table is that athletic training type uh, mentality. Um, and it's, it's a little bit interesting. I mean, if you go back in the history of both professions, we both came up a little bit different. Um, so one profession came up from almost the coach ATC, the coach trainer kind of, kind of route. And us yeah. as physical therapists came out of hospital based, um, world war two polio, um, kind of Correct. treatment. So, um, they both kind of came and now, now there's that merge, you know, we're merged yeah. together a little bit in sports. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's definitely, um, at least up here, uh, some some uh, turf battles, I guess, for yeah, lack of yeah. a better term. But uh, maybe we'll save that for a different show. Different I think yeah. we're, we're, yeah. we're deviating here. Um, yeah. But your your yeah. specialty, um, uh, not to not to cut you off here or uh, diminish what you do, because obviously you have a, a great skill set. But um, you want to talk about at least today, a stem and dry needling. So I guess let's start with a stem. You know, what's your, your background in that? Uh, you're an instructor for Graston as well. Um, you know, can you, I guess, talk about the research, the way it should be applied, how you apply it, you know, just things like that, and we'll go from there. Yeah, open that beer, Jeremy. There you go. Yeah, I'm waiting. Oh, I'll hold, yeah, I guess. Let, <laughs> no, this guy. Yeah, we, we got, we just went straight in and, and totally. Oh, man. Yeah, I got just talking, that, so. That's how exciting it is. <laughs> yeah, right Randy, in. thanks. Uh, Jeremy, talk, talk about your beer. Randy, talk about yours. I, go ahead, Randy. I don't even know what oh, my beer is. Technically, it's a surprise beer. Surprise beer. I got some. Uh, I got some sweet water going coastal. A little IPA nice. with pineapple. I usually don't like fruit in my beer, but this one's not too bad. Um, so it makes me think like I'm at the beach because I haven't been able to get to the beach all summer. So. Very nice. Awesome. Me, I have a, a, a client, former client of mine. I hung out with him on uh, like a week ago, and uh, he, we uh, traded some home brews, and he told me what this was, but I got caught up in conversation, so I really have no idea what it is. But uh, Brian Crossland, Big Bry, this is this for you, big guy. I'll uh, I'll give my rating once I've had a good couple sips of this bad boy. But All it right, looks delicious. Yeah, give us What's that rating. I have my, today? I have my crunk cut back. Am I, uh, Jeremy? What'd you call it? Goblet something? Anyway, <laughs> uh, with my uh, Noble Oak uh, bourbon here, so that's what I'm uh, sipping on. But uh, let, let's go back. Sorry, we, we kind of got out of order here. Yeah, Randy, if you could uh, shed some light on on the system component here. Yeah. So um, my my background, you know, I've um, I got into treating with instruments when I was at Duke. I had a um, an individual there who was a, a clinician, and it was I was like, hey, what's what's going on over there? You know, I think as a, as an athletic trainer, I used a reflex hammer and something like that. You know, but um, yep. It was just he was getting effective uh, results with his patients. And I think that's how we kind of pick up on some skills, too, is that you see other clinicians that you're working with. And you're like, well, they're getting their patients better even faster than I am. Well, I need to learn what they're doing. Um, so that's how I kind of got into Graston. And um, I've been instructing since 2014, been a lead instructor since 2016. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoy the modality and I, I teach it because it, it works for me. And I, I like to share. Um, so if I can share my my experiences, my backgrounds with it, then, then I'm absolutely going to do that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Jaren, any, well, first of all, what's your rating there, bud? Uh, I, I, I haven't, I haven't got a good sip. I was, uh, uh I had a, right. the thing was highly carbonated. So <laughs> while you guys were talking, there was beer going everywhere. It's trying to keep my um, cool, but, uh, um, Randy, what, what is, what's your, aside from just the fact that you get good, 
outcomes or, or patients respond. Um, I guess, can, can you shed a little bit insight on, on just your approach in the clinic and then also maybe just share uh, some, some evidence? Because uh, I, yeah. I, I think out there we're getting to a point, um, you know, with social media and, and everything that, that there's, there's two sides of the spectrum. We have people that try and follow research to the, the letter of the law. And then we have people that just poo-poo it and say it, it's not applicable and there's flaws and biases and fraudulent research. So yeah. mm -hmm. um, if you could kind of address uh, both of those questions there. And then yeah, I, I have a good follow-up question after that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just, just on the topic of research, we can kind of get in this um, a little bit more with um, instrument-assisted, um, but physical therapy research and, and just rehabilitation research is going to be a little bit different than medical surgical procedures or uh, medications, right? Like we're usually just going to do stuff and then research it later. Um, so we kind of, we kind of do a, a half backwards pyramid when we're talking about developing um, case series, clinical trials all the way up um, where, you know, we're not going to get a, a vaccine or we're not going to get a medication and we're not going to get a surgical approach unless it's been going through animal studies all the way through. Um, so, you know, um, grass and technique and instruments, they started off depending on, you know, where you're thinking Cirax cross friction massage and adding an mm. instrument to it. Um, so it was just applying principles and then they start doing research on it to find out, oh, why is somebody getting better? Um, and I think intuitively, we always want to know, right? So I want to know two things. I want to know that somebody's going to get better from my intervention and why they're getting better from my intervention. And the first one I care more about, I care more about what the patient tells me that they're getting better. Cause if I can, if I can get them better, they're going to come through my door. They're going to be happy. I feel happy with myself on the back end. We want to know why, I mean, we're just, we're naturally intuitive um, as PTs. I mean, I think that's where the research is really lacking, right? We have all these theories of why, um, but you know, nothing's kind of that, that single entity that lets us know that exactly what's happening. Um, you know, for instrument assisted, I think it, it creates a window of opportunity for me. That's what I tell all my patients, like, Hey, I'm going to create this window. Um, you're going to be moving a little bit better. Um, I need you then to adjunct out with exercise. So it lets me enter into their movement system a little bit faster. It lets me reduce their pain so they can move better. Um, and then, mm -hmm. and then exercise is the staple for me. It's still exercise. I got to give them the correct things to move, um, and to move better and move more often. That's awesome. that's perfect. That's uh, I think we 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 say that we've talked about many here. of the we've talked about principles versus methods, uh, which you touched mm -hmm. upon uh, as well as the whys. Uh, you know, so window of opportunity. Yep, window uh, of opportunity. Yeah, Jeremy, just the evidence. You know, yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. No, well, um, well, speaking of evidence and that sort of thing, some reason why I was just like, and I was attracted, like, oh, let's we gotta get Randy on this show was. I think when we were talking about McMurray's test and, you know, for all our listeners at home, you know, and, you know, there's these people that hang their hat on, you know, one or two research articles, a lot of them bashing manual therapy. Uh, the two gentlemen I'm talking to right now are probably more in depth in the research than I've met of a lot of the PTs uh, I've ever met out there. But uh, I think we're talking about McMurray's test and you knew exactly the reason why behind why McMurray added like internal rotation, external rotation, um, the exact how the technique was performed as if you were actually there in the lab with him working on it. I was like, oh shit. Um, so it was really cool to, to kind of hear that from you. And you can, yeah, I can just hear how you kind of express yourself, how involved you are in the research. So, um, yeah. you know, kind of going off of, off of that, 
Um, something I wanted to bring up is that kind of follow-up question was um, we had another guest on this, uh, Dr. Kyle Feldman, and he brought up something pretty interesting uh, was that he um, stopped performing manipulations for a period of time and he's big into manipulations. Uh, was there ever a time frame or anything like that that you tempted to try to get the same results that uh, for your patients that you typically would use you know, instrument assistive techniques, but decide not to and see if it made the difference at all? Not, not, I can't say I have. And I think the reason is, is maybe the setting I'm in, I can't, you know, I can't afford to try things out and not, not get results right away. And, and, and I, I think as long as I understand and I'm comfortable with, you know, the theories behind it and, and kind of what I'm thinking of, I think, Another thing that maybe we can um, touch on is, you know, a lot of new grads, they, they don't, they don't know why they're doing something. So they're taught to do X manipulation for this type of movement dysfunction. Well, really, why are you doing, what's the theory behind it? Is it just you're closing your eyes and doing it or what's the really purpose behind it? And I think as long as you have a purpose, you can sell that to the patient. And that might be why they get better is you're selling the, the intervention and you're selling that placebo effect. But again, it's a window of opportunity then and it, to get them to move better, um, to get them to uh, kind of restore their function. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, you, you said it great. It's, uh, it's what's your why, no matter if it's, it's any, um, any technique. Uh, and I think, and, and you said it was point number two for you, you know, what's the why behind doing this intervention or any other? And I think it's important to understand and, and do your due diligence as, as a clinician and understand the different plausible theories that are out there, whether there, there's one or whether there's seven, um, because there's probably some validity to all of them. And now it's your job as a clinician to, to sift through it and, and, and determine which, which is occurring or maybe which is occurring for said patient, because it might vary patient to patient. Would you, would you agree or disagree with that? That's right. Yeah. As, and I think as long as you have that purpose in mind, then you're going to be a good clinician. Um, e even if your purpose is not exactly as mine, I mean, there's plenty yeah. of different ways to get to the same point. Yeah. More, more than one way to skin a cat. Um, yep. That's true. Question with, with ASTIM. And I know when I, I started using ASTIM as I was a, a student and I was, uh, I was all about learning each technique because for some reason I thought the techniques were going to make me a better clinician. So that was my initial road path. And then, you know, shortly after that, when I graduated and then went to residency, I developed the whys and the clinical decision-making and reasoning. And I, you know, started to question not only myself, but research as well and just everything. Um, but early on it was, and this was 2012, 2013, uh, grass or, or instrument assisted, uh, soft tissue was, um, create the petechiae, uh, basically bruise your patient, um, yep. you know, rub them until they start to turn red. Um, yep. I've since backed off on that, but you know, mm -hmm. can you can you shed your expertise on that, your, yeah. your rationale on that? Should we be doing that? Should we not? Um, is it okay to do it to certain patients and not others? Just just what's the the theories behind? Yeah, that? yeah. So I'll, I'll speak from a from a Graston bias, um, just from what we instruct, and it's really mm -hmm. it's it's evolution of how we understand we're creating that change, right? So mm -hmm. initially, our studies were in the animal studies, and mm -hmm. those initial studies by Logmani let us know that if we if we put a heavy amount of pressure down, we get fibroblasts. That's basically mm -hmm. what the study told us, right? And that's in, it was in rats. 
Correct. Yep. Um, but but what we really ignored, and we ignored as instructors too, was hey, if you put light and moderate pressure down, you also get fibroblasts. So why the heck are we injuring normally healthy tissue when we don't have to? Where we actually get clinical results by causing fibroblasts to get there. Maybe we're going to desensitize. Um, so that's probably that's number one for me is we're going to desensitize mm-hmm. that system. Mm-hmm. Maybe their tone's going to be reduced. Then we get fibroblasts there. Now there's evidence to show maybe there's some circulating stem cells that are coming as well. So there's plenty of different things that we're doing without putting heavy pressure down. Um, mm-hmm. And and now we instruct and we've since revised our our uh, grassing technique that you were you are not bruising somebody, you are not causing fatigue, um, because that's not our approach. Our approach is built more off of treating the fascial planes, treating uh, mechanotransduction is kind of the evidence that supports all of that. Um, where we're we're putting pressure down mechanically, but we want to have a chemical effect um, happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have another question, but Jared, do you have anything to, to ask or add? Or no, I, I okay. comparing to what I got in my extra most dry needling course at for our fellowship um, for IAR was how he explained, um, you know, eye stem and different types of soft tissue techniques but especially like eye stem uh can improve the uh, i guess the mobility or the sliding effect between muscles um and then we'll talk about dry needling how it actually makes some actual more classic changes or causes more of that immune response but uh no it's interesting to hear uh that approach from and even 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 that sliding, um, we're not exactly sure that's actually happening. Like I'd be foolish to say you're deforming you're deforming uh, you know fascia. Like I don't know if you're quite doing that, but you're probably bringing in some fibroblasts. You're bringing you're bringing in some HA into the system. You're causing a, maybe a more viscous substance to be a little bit more um, liquid because you are bringing in some substances. So now maybe the patient can move a little bit better because they're desensitized and they have that extra flow. That's you know, the extra fluid that's in there. Um, you know, when we talk about, you know, getting in there and breaking up a scar, that's not happening. And we don't, we don't instruct that. Like that's, that's probably not going to be um, your mainstay treatment for instruments. Yeah. I think that that's important to just kind of, uh, reiterate is, you know, where it takes thousands of pounds of pressure to deform tissue and, and probably some that's of right. the changes we're making are neurophysiological or something with, you know, descending inhibition, uh, mm-hmm. affecting the hypertonicity that's there. And we're not actually mashing or, or breaking, um, up soft tissue or scar tissue, like you said. Um, I, I did have a question, um, and, and I guess maybe philosophies in terms of pressure, um, to kind of piggyback off, off your last statement, Randy, in terms of, do you grade different pressures? Um, I know you said, you know, it's doing it lighter, but you know, there's theories you're with different pressures, you're, you're stimulating different mechanoreceptors, um, or different alpha, beta, uh, delta fibers and things like that. Um, I don't know if Braston specifically talks about that, or if you have any research that you you point to or theories, I should say. Yeah. So there's some, there's a little bit of evidence on two point discrimination and utilizing a lighter brushing technique, um, Mm -hmm. uh, over an area. So there is some, and and again, we don't know why we just know two point discrimination got better. That's, that's that's what the study told us. Right. So, um, there's different, uh, variable techniques that we utilize and we teach a desensitizing basically stroke. That's pretty light works on that light touch. Um, and then we also teach a, a heavier pressure, Again, not to cause bruising or, or bleeding, but um, you know, heavier pressure to get that mechanical force. Mechanotransduction is kind of what we're going for at that point. 
Um, and that's similar, you know, that's similar to you doing exercise or you uh, going on a foam roller. So there's plenty of different ways that uh, we kind of use that in practice. And how about in terms of um, making a hypotonic, quote unquote, muscle, you know, activate more, I guess, for lack of a better term, and having a hypertonic kind of de-inhibit a little bit with speeds. Uh, I know that's kind of out there a little bit as well. If yeah. you move the, the bar or, or tool faster, um, yeah. you're going to excite the muscle. And if you move it slower with deeper pressure, you're going to de-inhibit it. Um, anything to that? Yeah, uh, probably likely made up, but theories, you know, it's theory. Okay. It's, it's yeah. not, yeah. there's no evidence to support it necessarily. But I, we, we pull a lot, I think, from massage therapy too, right? So um, mm -hmm. if a massage therapist is doing a gentler stroke, uh, a more elongated stroke, things are going to like, you know, take that tone down. If you do a more aggressive sport massage, you're trying to amp things up. So it's kind of mm -hmm. that same philosophy pulling through, but there's nothing that shows one's ca actually causing that change. Um, minus, minus that clinical, minus a clinical experience, you know, that's, that's yeah. be a, a one, one piece. Agreed. And I think, uh, would you say some of it is some trial and error, you know, and that's how we develop our clinical decision-making that, that clinical experience and, you know, in, in a good way, clinical bias. I, I think it's important to have bias, but also be aware of your bias. Would would you agree or disagree with, with tools such as, you know, cupping, a stem, dry needle, mm -hmm. and things like that? Yeah, I think I think we probably all had a professor in our program that said every patient's the end of one, right? So I think that's like I think they send that out in a mass email to all the professors, right? Like <laughs> yeah. every single patient you see is an end of one. You need to get information from that patient and develop your clinical reasoning off of that patient, but also what the evidence says. Um, and for me, if it's working for the patient and they're getting better and moving better, well, I'm going to keep on doing that same intervention. Even if the evidence says, oh, you should do something else. Well, too bad. This patient's responding to what I'm doing right now. Um, so, you know, I think that's in the back of my mind to develop those, that clinical expertise. But then you also need to recognize that maybe some of the bias is that just because it worked with one patient for the same condition or similar condition, don't think it's going to work necessarily for the same condition. You have to be open to other options. And how long are you, you willing to give that? Okay, I had somebody come in with, let's say, a rotator cuff tendonitis tendinopathy, and it worked with Graston. And you get another patient come in. Oh, I'm going to do the same thing. It worked for the last person. How long are you you letting that ride out before you you switch your approach if it's not working? Yeah. So I mean, if we're talking specifically like tendinosis and tendinopathy, that's a little bit longer treatment. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I definitely expect maybe some desensitization to happen. Like something's mm -hmm. going to happen. Hopefully, that first visit. If nothing happens that first visit, I'm wondering if it's actually a musculoskeletal condition or not. Um, kind of thing. correct. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but a, a couple weeks for tendinosis type condition and kind of working through the the phases of rehab. Um, if we're talking more about just movement dysfunction, well, I want an immediate change. I mean, if I'm if I'm desensitizing and I'm trying to get them to move better and I can't do it, well, I need to change my technique because I needed them to go home with something. Um, yeah. So I might, I might change it immediately to, to get that change, to get that window of opportunity, like I said a couple times. I got you. And, and last question before uh, – sorry, sorry, Jerry, do you have anything? I'm sorry. I'm just like wrapping no, up. No, yeah, <laughs> you're good. You're good. Um, um, I mean, sounds like you would probably, you know – how often are you using like the test retest principle, especially with like I stem and that sort of stuff? That's, I mean, that's a, that's a hundred percent. So okay. I, I follow, you know, I, I do some um, SFMA stuff on the front end. Um, so I, I kind of follow that model and kind of work my way through that. Um, you know, I think intuitively as we get more experience as clinicians, we're, we're utilizing something that works for us in our patient population. So 
you know, whatever you're using for your movement assessment, you know, I've added, I've added some things in my movement assessment. I'm going to continue to do that. And then that's my pretest. I try to find those asterisk signs and then work, uh, work my treatments and then retest those again. Um, awesome. Um, you, you had mentioned, um, fascial planes and things like that. Uh, there's a, mm -hmm. a, a big book by uh, Thomas Myers, uh, anatomy yep. trains. Uh, I know when I was going through, especially my instrument assisted soft tissue training. And, and again, this was this in school. I, I bought the book. I read it from cover to cover. Uh, I think, um, probably twice, uh, at least one and a half times, um, in terms of, you know, the connecting fascial planes and, and, and things like that. Is that something you, you keep in mind? Um, do you agree with it? Disagree with it? You know, uh, it was just some, you know, you, you had mentioned fascial planes. I figured I'd ask. Yeah. Um, yep, and if, yep. is this something that you'd recommend people to read just for a different uh, viewpoint or lens to look through uh, things through? Yeah, it's a I I would I mean, it's a good dry read, but, um, you know, you got <laughs> to you got to be invested in maybe only take one plane at a time and really, really think about it. Um, I I kind of like you, I it didn't make sense to me as much until I was at Duke and I was working with um, somebody who. Um, ended up having a groin strain, um, and I finally figured out that it was because their neck wasn't rotating. So every time they turned to the right, they had they couldn't turn to the right, so they had to open up their hips more to get to the right. Um, and it was really it, it opened my eyes to regional interdependence. So I think that's really what Anatomy Trains does is it lets you think outside of just that that spot that segment um, and get you to different regions in the body. Um, so yeah. I, I don't think, I don't necessarily think every plantar fascia issue is from a, needs to have a suboccipital release. Like that's not necessarily yeah. um, the case, yeah. but, but don't be, don't be surprised if uh, a foot issue is a calf issue, is a hamstring issue, is a low back issue. And you need to go up that chain and kind of, um, assess it at least, um, and make yeah. sure that you're screening those things out. Yeah, agreed. I, I don't follow uh, anatomy trains anymore. Uh, I, I went down that rabbit hole. I've, I've since come out. Mm -hmm. um, but you you hit something important, the regional independence. And I think um, some of the leaders in that, I, you know, anatomy trains, I would put in there. Greg Cook's movement book, you know, with his yep. FMS and SFMA were, for me, paramount, you know, seven yep. years ago to at least have that lens and, and understand mm -hmm. that there are other things to look at. Now, my personal treatment approach has differed a, a little bit, especially away from, from um, anatomy trains uh, specifically. But I, I think that concept of regional interdependence is important to have that understanding and, and lens when we're treating people. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well said. Should we move on to Yeah, yeah. Try let's, uh, yeah. Do you have anything else, Jay, I do have a fun story to, uh, about iStem, though. I don't know if you guys want to hear it. Yeah, so, please. Uh, Give it up. So this wasn't bit. me. Uh, but this is okay. Kind of, it was. Kind of, was this a friend? It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it was a friend. I, I, Asking I was, for a friend. I was being mentored. Uh, okay. This was uh, my mentor working on on someone. We had, I think, we had washer tools back then. Um, but it was a young guy who he had a gunshot wound uh, from the gun being in his pocket. I don't know how that happened, but did he like cheddar bob himself? Better. Huh? Did he no, cheddar bob himself? Like, yeah, I don't know what happened. It was in his pocket. I have, you, I have you ever idea. seen you ever seen Eight Mile when mile, Cheddar yeah. Bob shoots himself in in the dick? <laughs> I was, You've never seen Eight Mile? No, dude. He's never what, Eminem. Oh my god! Uh, my, I, I grew up a sheltered uh, life, dude. Very sheltered, uh, dude. Church yeah, every Sunday. Uh, oh. 
uh, Jeremy, just well, just leave just leave and start watching. Yeah, yeah I'm just gonna well, close up here now. <laughs> for for the audience, you should go watch Eight Mile with Eminem. It was very big in 2000. I'm dating myself. Well, he, shot, he, shot his, 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 he shot his junk he's, off? He's, he shot his pecker, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> you had to go to that But yeah, he had a gunshot wound. And I guess at the time, the thought process with, you know, using gua sha or eye stem was, you know, trying to break up scar tissue. Because that's what we knew. Um, it made sense. That was our most aggressive soft tissue tool he had a bunch of it um the bullet fragmented and went to a couple different places so um we're uh, my mentor and then a couple times for like with me because he was showing me we'd get into the point where you know some of his scars would actually bleed um like a little bit you know that was how much fatigue was kind of coming through but um I forget what happened. Either he was on vacation, or the the my mentor, the treating therapist, was. But he was out for like a week or two. Um, and when he came back, the client, his score like like doubled in size, like his main one. And we're like, what do what the hell happened? Um, he was just like, well, I was trying to do what you guys were doing. So. Like with what? <laughs> Use like an actual knife, not like your your butter knife, like an actual like kitchen like knife, steak that you knife? Cut a steak with. And he was apparently went to town like on himself. Knife. Oh yeah, and uh, or like oh that's that's not what you're gonna do. I mean that now, if the idea of us like breaking up any scar tissue, you just create a lot more. But uh, it's kind well, of funny. That's a good sh you know show of evolution and uh growing up as a therapist but it was quite it was kind Inter of funny interesting yeah i mean there's a reason why he shot himself in the leg was, <laughs> you, can, you can tell by the guy but um yeah that was funny I, I, I was what yeah. were you gonna say no no, no, no i was, I was gonna, gonna say, say i had a, I had a mentor as well during my residency and i was doing some hours with him and he legit had a serrated steak knife and i had i remember asking him i was like do you have a, a grass and i had like a fiber blaster i would carry around with me and he's like, yeah, I just use that that knife. Just use the the non serrated side. And I was like, you like I was I looked at. It, I was like, you serious? He's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and then you have this story with this guy who used the butcher knife. It's it's crazy yeah. what we do as therapists. Yeah, pretty nuts. Uh, anyway, still, all right, let's. Yeah. yeah, that's nuts. I feel bad for that guy. Let, let's transition to uh, dry needling. So, Randy, you've had some unique training um under dry needling uh if you can share some of your background and you know you've had yeah. some of the uh the godfathers there of uh people who are at least pushing forward and, and some of the models that we integrate now so if you could just highlight that and then we'll jump into yeah, it absolutely yeah so so back in um my first experience with dry needling was back in 2009 i was at i was at duke and we we started a a um fifa medical center there so we had some different um you know, players come in and kind of get some treatments or just understand like why they're getting injured. Um, so um, clinician came down uh, from Virginia and, you know, started to do this dry needling technique. I'm like, well, what the heck is this? This is nice. Like, this is a different type of technique. I'm like, can I do that? Um, so uh, the next year I signed up for a class, ended up going to it, ended up uh, coming back into North Carolina. And then I figured out that North Carolina didn't let you dry needle. Um, so everybody out there should probably know their scope of practice within their state um, before they start to uh, kind of go to courses and just think that they can do stuff. But um, it ended up that that next year, North Carolina moved, moved uh, to allow dry needling. And um, I ended up going to the military setting at that point and they were dry needling for a long time. So 
you know, I learned um, my main um, kind of techniques that I use are off of Chan Gunn's uh, philosophy. So he's up in Canada. He's a he's a pain management um, physician. Um, he was, you know, North America, him and uh, Dahmer Holtz group um, were the two main um, main groups. And, um, you know, most, I think, of Dahmer Holtz group kind of split off in the United States and started to develop yep. some other companies. Um, and uh, uh, in the military, um, one of my colleagues started to teach dry needling within the military because they tried to bring some big names in and they wanted way too much money. So what the command said was, hey, you go to every single course, come back and teach everybody. Um, so that's what he did. He went out and went to multiple courses and then came on back and started teaching it. Um, and that was back in 2011, 2012. And then I jumped on with them in 2014 and started to bring the, the, the gun approach as well to that, to that model. Um, so that's pretty much the background, you know, some in, in the military, we get a chance to, you know, um, observe and shadow. And I got a lot of good mentorship from a pain management physician um, that we have um, within the hospital. So, you know, I think even for us as PTs, if you have a chance to go and shadow a doc or a pain management physician to see what their philosophies are, it'll open your eyes to some things that maybe you want to kind of, um, uh, to go in and learn a little bit different techniques for too. Uh, can you just, um, I guess, talk about the, his philosophy? You, you say chain gun model, but uh, yeah. just for our audience, what, what is the yeah, chain gun model? Yeah. I, I mean, I so, think Jeremy and I know, but. Yeah, so um, it's radiculopathic pain or neuropathic pain. And basically um, the model um, lets us know that compression of a nerve root, uh, compression um, near the spine is going to cause some distal effects. So, um, maybe for the audience, if they can think of a patient that keeps on coming in with Achilles tendon pain, they keep on coming in, they keep on coming in, you get them better, but then they come in again next, you know, maybe three months later, you get them better, they come in again. And well, if you go back and think, well, could it be some sort of low level radiculopathy that is actually causing some dysfunction down the chain? And that's basically the idea is that those pain sites are not necessarily the pain source, right? So we need to go back to the source. Um, to my patients, I give a simple analogy. I say, you know, imagine a hose and a spigot um, that's on the that's on the hose bib, and you got a sprinkler that's water in the grass. Well, everybody else has been treating you back at the sprinkler at the grass for the water not working. I'm going back up to the hose bib where the trash can is kind of compressing that hose a little bit, or there's a cinder block Same that's analogy. on it. So, so I need to go back and I need to treat at the at the source of that issue, and then. It's not for everybody, so I think you need to have a good assessment approach to decide who it's going to be before. But you know, for myself, about 10 to 20 percent of the population is going to fall in that model um, mm -hmm. that they've gone through some previous low back issues, some previous radiculopathy, some spondylosis, spondylolisthesis that's causing some sort of dysfunction up at their spine that we can go back and treat. Um, and then the other chunk is going to be you know primary, secondary trigger points. Um, it's kind of that bigger chunk. And when you said trigger point, are you using um, trigger point, um, I guess, treatment where you're pistoning or pecking um, the area? Are you using stim? Are you doing in situ? What, what's your philosophy on that? Or, or maybe not a philosophy, but what? how do you treat? Yeah, I think so. I think all philosophies are actually pretty good because it's all patient tolerance, really. So as long as you get mm -hmm. the change in the tissue and change in the movement, that's why when Jeremy said test, retest, like yeah. if they're on the table and I do just an in situ 
and they're not getting a change, well, I need to get it back on the table and maybe I need to piston that muscle. Maybe I need to add some e-stem into that muscle. My primary go-to is going to be a piston, try to get one or two twitch responses and then reassess. Um, that's going to mm. be my primary, but we need to be flexible off of that. We need to make sure that the sensitive patient needs to maybe have a technique that's less aggressive and maybe somebody who needs a little bit more or if want to facilitate a muscle, we need to have that in the tool bag as well. Um, it, you, you had said, I just want to try tying some things together. You use the SFMA. You still currently use SFMA, at least for, for certain uh, populations? Yeah, so I use the top tier of SFMA. And, okay. And then I'll, I'll break that down. I'll try to do a, asymmetrical, make, make sure it's passive versus active. So, and then I add in a mm -hmm. few other kind of screening tests. So I, I, check, I check cross arm adduction. I check wrist extension a lot because I have a lot of guys who do push ups. Um, so that's okay. a, a primary prevention. And then close chain dorsiflexion, I test as well because it's just, it's so prevalent in my population that I kind of add in a few other screening tests. So I use it as a screen to guide my examination of where I'm going. Um, I'm blanking on the name right now, the company, but they were big on using the SFMA with their trigger point model and then using it as a test. We test it. They've since moved away from it and, and now kind of use the, the STEM model. I, I'm totally blanking out right now. Uh, it'll come to me. Um, so do kin you kinetic Kineticor? Kineticor. There you go. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I was blanking on that, but um, yeah. yeah. So and I think they since ever... I think they since changed. I think they since changed yeah. to uh, EIM or what they moved. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of they merged. Mean, kind of they, they've merged. Yeah. Uh, and but they're still Kineticor. Um, I, I know we took them through my fellowship. Uh, they don't use that model anymore with the SFMA. It, it was something mm -hmm. I had asked. Uh, and, and they actually moved away from trigger pointing um, and they use more uh, stem, especially with a handheld and not like the mm -hmm. overall, but um, they have different levels and stuff. But uh, yeah. I just wanted to tie that because I know you said you use SFMA. Is that um, something you use with, with your patients where you'll, you'll test a, a top tier and, you know, get maybe a, a painful dysfunctional movement pattern and then trigger point. And I know when we were talking uh, previously where you kind of use it to wake up a muscle or, or, or kind of yeah. slap a muscle can, um, you just talk about that and, and maybe how you use it. Yeah, so I, I utilize the SFMA as a screen. So I'll I'll go back to that example of plantar fasciitis and fasciosis and uh, and maybe treating the neck, right? Like if they are coming in for a plantar foot pain and they have some neck flexion issues, like that might ring a bell to me. Like maybe I got something that's going on and let me work my way down. Um, rotation, extension, flexion, the lumbar spine, making sure I, I add in side bending. So there's a few different um, um, add-ins I do. If I had to actually describe what I do, it's probably a Syriac scanning exam with the SFMA. That's probably okay. exactly what I'm doing to see if I'm getting some contraction, contractile elements and stretch elements that are kind of causing some of that. Um, and that lets me know that it's musculoskeletal. I can dive in a little bit deeper um, to it. Mm. And in regards to like the activation, I think, I think, Dry needling can have a, a pretty profound impact on just like I, like I talked about slapping a muscle or waking up the muscle and then driving home some sequencing for exercises. So if we're working on leg extension or abduction, like, OK, let's get the core activation. Let's get the glutes to fire. Let's get the motion to happen. So, you know, kind of following maybe Hodge's model of core activation and some movement that that can kind of precede that. Um, so that, that's basically what awesome. I think of now. If now if somebody doesn't have a really big glute contraction, like yeah, I can wake that up. I got a few ways of doing it. I can do glute squeezes. I can do sequencing, or I can maybe do some dry needling in that glute, and then they it kind of facilitates them doing it a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, something I, I've um, kind of come across with um, 
you know, some training, I, I, we can't do it in New Jersey, but I've continued to, you know, stay with the research and, and take courses and stuff. Um, it, using dry needling as like a neuromuscular tool. Um, mm -hmm. And especially, uh, you could probably get it with um, trigger point and maybe you can attest to it, but I, I've had uh, or seen results with um, like stim it high, stim it hard, get that mm -hmm. contractile unit, get all those motor units yep. going and getting it in a more rhythmical uh, approach. And, and Jim, Jeremy, I kind of want to ask you a question too. Um, you know, you just took dry needling too. What's your approach been? Um, I know you guys, I think you guys were in the same class. Maybe you guys can just talk about, you know, what they're teaching you over IAR as well. So uh, kind of two-parter question. If uh, Randy, you could lead us out. Yeah, I, I think um, I think we, we need to get input to the brain. So however you're getting that input to the brain, we need to get it there. And then the brain needs to realize it can do it for itself. So yeah. absolutely, if you can get that contraction. I mean, that's why Russian was so so prevalent back in the day and still you know some some forms of that are used now is to just get input to the brain input to the brain but then i think the the thing that we can't leave out is adjunctive exercise all the evidence that's out there manual therapy plus exercise instrument assisted plus exercise dry needling plus exercise you got to make sure you have that that adjunct agreed agreed yeah. well said yeah so i obviously don't have too much experience in the matter um been reading it a lot more uh, since I've taken that course. Uh, I do like uh, IR. It kind of blends the um, trigger point model, the neurophysiological model. It blends uh, all the models together, which I appreciated. Um, I haven't got to play around with it too much besides on my uh, staff members and uh, a couple of close friends. Uh, but, uh, you know, what Randy was saying um, you know, I was, I work in a sports population and like, especially like runners and those sort of things with those kind of sleepy glutes that just, you know, tried a bunch of things and, you know, I kind of found some, you know, benefit with BFR of late. But, you know, once I start you know, going to that course of like, shit, I would really wish I can use dry needling to kind of stimulate these or as you guys would say, like slap these muscles to kind of wake them up. Um, and I kind of like appreciate, as we've talked about in previous episodes, more kind of season I get, the more kind of proximal I'm going. Uh, so that neurophysiological model, kind of treating it um, more proximally towards the spine. I think Randy uh, brought up a, a good analogy. I, I brought it up a, a couple of times, and so it's like treating a king toes. You're working with a king toes, you're trying to water your lawn, or I'm just trying to unkink your hose a little bit. Uh, the, I like Randy's version more with the, uh, you know, cinder blocks and all that spigot, sort of stuff. I mean, yeah. Spigot, that it's a little more more in depth, and I think the patients will pick up on it a little bit better. But um, yeah, it's kind of where I'm at currently. Uh, I really hope that we can practice it more than uh, because uh, you know I only have two staff members, and they're gonna get really tired of me dry kneeling all the time. <laughs> so um, my wife's I mean, definitely evidence... not volunteering for that one. Yeah, evidence evidence is really emergent. So, you know, if you look back and um, at even the CPGs that came out previously, and we talked about this, that, you know, the, the plantar fascia or heel pain CPG in 2008 did not mention dry kneeling whatsoever because there were no studies. And then in 2014, there was one study. So they could, that was actually beneficial. It found it was beneficial to treat um, the quadratus, the flexor halysis, and uh, sorry, flexor brevis and abductor halysis. Um, but they said, well, it's only one study, so we can't actually be for it, right? I you know, guarantee that the next CPG for heel pain is going to add it in there because I, 
already read five clinical trials that say dry needling in multiple forms. So add, adding in e-stem and the trigger point model have been beneficial for those with heel pain. Um, and if you look back at the, you know, the recent CPG for plantar uh, patellofemoral pain, they flat out said dry needling is not beneficial for uh, patellofemoral pain. But if you look at what the studies did, this, the studies um, treated the VMO and the vastus lateralis. Um, you know, for me, if, if I'm going to treat the knee, I'm not going to treat just the patellofemoral joint. I'm going to go up the chain. I'm going to treat the hip, the back. I'm going to go down the chain. I'm going to treat the ankle. So I think our forms of dry needling clinically don't necessarily match up to the clinical trials yet. So we're, we're, kind, of, we're kind of building that evidence as we go. And that's what happens. That's how we started off this conversation is, you know, PTs and, and sports, you know, and non-invasive stuff. We're going to do the techniques first, see that it works and keep doing it and then get the evidence later um, versus medicines. Going to do the studies first to then give you the medicine. Um, so a little, little backwards that we do it. No, I, I thank you for bringing that point up. Um, I, I think there are a lot of flaws in, in what we do. Like you said, the article uh, and this doesn't just apply to dry needling. Uh, I mean, patellofemoral pain syndrome is a pretty big umbrella or a garbage term that just knee, non-specific knee pain gets lumped into. And we're over here saying that uh, dry needling doesn't work because of one study, and that study looked at dry needling one specific muscle. Uh, however, we know uh, there are a lot of referral patterns, whether it's from the lumbar spine, the hip, uh, glute muscles, um, you know, quad muscles that refer, or even hip flexors that refer down to uh, the knee can give that knee pain. So how, how do we know? And I think it's important for the audience to know just because that article says it's, it's not effective. Well, maybe they didn't address the right structures. Um, and I, I have an article that I don't like, and it's, it's a high quality, high evidence article being the um, systematic review of meta-analysis uh, by, by uh, Gaddy or Gaddy in, in um, 2017 that looks at um, dry needling. I think there was like you know, eight or 12 different diagnoses from uh, post-op shoulder to plantar fasciitis to knee pain. Um, and each study, uh, a different form of dry needling or a different structure was, was targeted. Uh, I mean, to me, that's not high quality evidence. You're, you're just taking a hodgepodge and, and trying to take, um, you know, people with different diagnoses and, and lumping them up into a, a homogenous group. And that's just not how we treat. Uh, so I think your example was great, and, and thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, when we look uh, at the evidence, when we look at the evidence for dry needling, it it you know we can probably hang our hat on within four weeks, dry needling is going to reduce pain. Like we got that, so um, that that's good for me because if I can reduce somebody's pain in four weeks, well, I can get them moving again. Um, so I'm going to use it as an adjunct. Um, but I, you know, if mm -hmm. somebody doesn't like dry needling, I have other options. You know, there are other things you can do besides that. Um, you're in New Jersey. You guys are excellent clinicians. You have you're getting your patients better, right? Like, and you're not dry needling. Well, that's that's your model, and that's how you're treating. <laughs> You're, you're going to be successful. It's not like I'm down here in North Carolina getting everybody better four weeks faster than you. Um, it, it's you guys, you guys are getting people at, at the same rate because of your clinical reasoning and, and choosing what techniques meet the patient's needs. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I wish I could join you on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are certain cases where like, yeah, we will get them better, but you know, could have we get better, better in one, one quicker session or such and so yeah. forth. Um, Speaking I always, of so I, I, 
I have always said that it's a, it's a lot easier to to uh, needle for thirty seconds than to do like a you know a five minute soft tissue treatment to try to get the same result, right? So exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of research, um, so I do have dry needles, so I'm just it's like you know again play around, and practice with them. Um, but if you get uh, eye dry needle, which I think was referred to by Toko in our fellowship, they so nicely. Uh, put all this research for your disposal on just about anything dry needling. Um, so really, really good resource. It's free. I think uh, maybe if you buy something from them, I don't know, but they send it to me. I've been starting to dive into it uh, since I think they released this last week or this week. So real good resources. And again, we're, we're talking about hundreds of articles supporting dry needle and care. Um, so. And one, one thing we actually haven't talked about, which is a different model, which, um, you know, I started to get into a couple of years ago was, well, can we, can we use a dry needle like they would with Prolo? Um, can we actually treat, um, in a prolotherapy approach on a tendinosis type condition? And there, there's, there's one really good study that lets us know we can do that. The rest really use hyperdermic needles, but they use it dry, but it's still a hyperdermic needle. So it's a little bit different, obviously, than actually it's a lot different than a, uh, a acupuncture needle, um, going into a tendon. So, um, there's some emerging evidence on that and there's some emerging evidence on actually treating stroke patients and, and those with TBIs. Yep. So, mm -hmm. um, mm. you know, it's, it, it it's, it's going to be expanding every year and, um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how people start to incorporate it in more and more. Yeah. I, I think a big thing to, to understand if, uh, especially if you're, um, well, if you're a new grad coming out or a student and if you've been practicing and you're in a setting, understand if you're in sports and ortho, that not to to throw the nervous system or neuro PT upstream because I think that's where a lot of our effects are coming from the neuro aspect and uh, I think over the past probably three or, or four years I've really gained an appreciation of relearning my neuroanatomy and and things uh, you know the descending pathways the tracks the the uh, mechanoreceptors and then if you're a neuro I think this is a big one if you're a neuro understanding that these people still have musculoskeletal symptoms and if we can you know make some changes at those levels we, we might be able to to do well um and i know there's some studies on neurodynamics and um stroke patients or, or um uh spinal cord injury patients as, as well um and then for the audience randy I, I in my head the article you're talking about is the minkin one where he does a tenotomy on the biceps tendon I don't know if that's the same article. If you were thinking of some something else, la, uh, la, it's uh, lateral elbow. I don't have the article on my um, okay. top of my head, okay. but it's with okay. the uh, ten, tennis elbow. Okay, same same type of deal. They'll use that like a yeah. anatomy poking holes yep. to create that vascularization and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, fi okay. fibroblasts and yeah. uh, growth yeah. factors and mm. yeah, yeah understanding the physiology basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Awesome. And, I, and I, I have a I have a maybe a little neat story to add for that. Please um, do for. Um, really getting into that neuro, the probably the most impactful time was at my fellowship when um, the sports doc and myself start to learn ultrasound, so musculoskeletal ultrasound, and he was starting to use it and uh, to try to incorporate some PRP type stuff that was obviously coming around at that time. And the only ultrasound unit that I had access to was at um, in the Peds and Women's Health building. So I had to go to the Peds and Women's Health building um, to get the ultrasounds and make sure I'm not walking on anything I shouldn't to learn musculoskeletal ultrasounds. Um, and while I was there, I got to talk to the, the Peds therapist and um, 
learning the neural developmental sequence at that point was the most impactful thing that could ever happen in my mm -hmm. career. How I got to spend a good couple of weeks with her, how she was treating children. I was like, Hey, why aren't we treating adults this way? Because they just, kids just respond to positions. Well, adults can respond to positions too. Um, mm -hmm. And that brings in that neurologic that brings down that neurologic model. So PNF, I mean, mm. a lot of PNF was done there, rhythmic stave. Yep. Um, and, and that just kind of got me interested in more and that is really the neuro neurology behind musculoskeletal. Yeah. And I, I think for me that, that PEDS component, I think uh, something that resonated for me was that it was Greg Cook's book. Um, and, and a lot of his correctives kind of go back to some of those developmental stages that uh, as a, an adult, we either lose or maybe because of an injury or pain, we lose, you know, things like uh, tall kneeling, half kneeling, crawling, um, you know, and, and exercises like that, split stance positions. Um, to me, that was uh, kind of bridged that gap between peds. And then later on, I connected that neuro aspect back to it. Yep. Kind of went from there. Yep. But yeah, awesome. Good stuff, man. It's yeah. great. Um, so many other Last nuggets of wisdom or anything like that in regards to eye stem or dry needling and good clinical cases or anything. I, I'm out of questions. I feel like I've been uh, pelting Randy with all these questions, but um, I, you know, yeah, I felt like it. I felt like I was sitting. I felt like I was sitting in Congress here for a second. Yeah, <laughs> I was excited to have you and your experience on there. Um, you know, thank you for for sharing. Do you have any, anything else you want to you want to add there or? I just I just make sure that the audience you know, keeps an open mind to all techniques and and really it's not about the technique it's about your system and how you apply that system and how you apply your examination and then choosing what technique to do um, is really the and then and then that, that might number two point making sure you have a good philosophy behind why you're choosing it. Yeah, uh, uh, all great Perfect. advice. Well yeah. said. Hey Randy, thanks again for taking the time out. Yeah, and, appreciate uh, it. Yeah, sharing, sharing your expertise and your background. Uh, you know, hopefully we can have you on again and uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. perhaps discussing, uh, you know, the difference between uh, sports fellowships and manual therapy fellowships or, or yeah. something else. But uh, we definitely enjoyed having you, having you on. Or train the tactical athlete. I'm sure you have yeah. some real expertise yeah. in that. That'd we, be we awesome. Can get, we, can get, we can get into the PTATC debate, too, a little bit if you want to. So Yeah, oh, you, yeah, you, you yeah, hold both. That'd be nice. Cool. That would be cool. Give you perspectives. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know, thanks for coming on and, uh, everyone, thank you for listening in. Uh, if you have any questions or anything like that, feel free to shoot it at us at, uh, at Manips and Sips on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, um, I'm at the decent doctor and at trifecta therapeutics. Brandon's at think like a fellow and at pursuits PT. Now, Randy, I don't know if you have any social media sort of things. Uh, not really. I got, I got a Facebook page, but we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. If you want to, if you want to search that. me to search my first name and last name and you're, you can find me if you want. Yeah. You find that stellar, uh, stellar CV he has. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's how float, floating around on Google somewhere. There you go. So. Um, well, yeah, thank you again for having on and, uh, yeah, cheers. I everyone. I'm it. out. So cheers guys. Thanks again, Randy. Thanks. Yeah.